Joseph and the, the, the rest of uh, Genesis. I just came alive all of a sudden. Yeah, Woke you up. It's always good to have those things because it wakes people up. I need to schedule with Paul every once in a while. Just a loud pop right in the middle of the sermon so that everybody's awake and listening. Uh, before we get to our text, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Uh, we, we have confidence that you will speak to us by it. Not, not by my eloquence or by my ingenuity with the handling of your word, but because your word is living and active. And that you have promised to speak to us through it. That you have promised to nourish us by it. That you've promised to, to bring us to repentance through it and to give us faith by the proclamation of Christ. And so we pray that you would do so this morning. That you would guide us, lead us, nourish us by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. By a show of hands, how many of you enjoy traveling? You like to travel. A lot of you like to travel. I love to travel. It's like, I mean, it doesn't even matter what kind of vehicle or route you're taking. It's like a new adventure. I love uh, taking an airplane especially, though. Um, for, For some reason, it's so... Just comforting. It's it's restful. Y'all don't think so? I, I see a few who don't think so. Maybe you travel more than I do, and it gets on your nerves after a while. Uh, I raise my hands when when the airplane takes off. It's like a roller coaster. But I, I love uh, to travel. Every, each travel is like a new adventure. I dream of one day traveling to England and going through Spain and um, and Germany and Italy and France, perhaps. Uh, but often the dream of a journey turns out to be a little bit different than reality. Uh, Have you ever had travel plans to take this journey and things didn't go exactly the way you had anticipated them going? Anthony Bourdain, uh, who for many years was a food and travel show host with the Travel Channel, says this, Travel isn't always pretty. It isn't always comfortable. Sometimes it hurts. It even breaks your heart. But that's okay. The journey changes you. It should change you. It leaves marks on your memory, on your consciousness, on your heart, and on your body. You take something with you, hopefully you leave something good behind. And that's true of a few journeys I've taken. They've changed me uh, in, in some ways. And it's definitely true of Jacob's journey that we've been reading about throughout Genesis. It hasn't been a pretty journey, has it? It hasn't been comfortable for him. It's been heartbreaking at times. But we can absolutely say that this journey has changed Jacob. It's changed his mind, his perspective on on God, on life, on what is important in life. It's changed his heart as he reconciled with his brother after those many years. It's, It's even changed his body. He's no longer... Uh, a trickster running for his life. He's, his name's not even the same. Uh, the journey's made him stronger, more confident in God, and yet it's also made him weaker in that he walks with a limp as he recognizes his dependence upon God. But as Jacob journeys back to Bethel and eventually all the way back home to his father's house, one thing is clear. God has been faithful to Jacob. God has been faithful Every step of this journey, God has kept his word. Through this long journey, God has sustained him and fulfilled his promises. 
And we can have this same assurance as we travel as pilgrims through this life of faith. God will be faithful to his people. We can count on it. We can bank on this. Through the ups and downs, through the challenges, through the trials, through the great sorrows, and through the great joys, God is faithful. So look with me at our text as I read Genesis chapter 35, verses 1 through 29. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were there around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakruth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when they came, when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him.
May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. I want us to to consider this morning God's patience with his people, God's graciousness to his people, and God's faithfulness to his people. We'll do this by considering how God works in the life of Jacob to bring him all the way home. So first in verses 1 through 4, consider how God reminds Jacob of his vow. God reminds Jacob of his vow that he had made many years ago, that if God would be faithful to him and keep all of his promises that he would, and brought him all the way back to the house of his father, that God would be his God. So see God's word first, get up, he says, go to Bethel and worship me there. Worship the God, he says, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. He's reminding him of this vow that he made many years ago as he recalls his fleeing from his brother Esau. And so the the author moves rather quickly through this immediately to Jacob's words. He speaks to the people. He tells them several things. Put away your foreign gods. And where did these foreign gods come from? Some may have come from Rachel, who had smuggled her father's gods with her, hidden them from him. But also it it appears that some of the idols, perhaps of Shechem. Remember, the sons of Jacob had looted Shechem with all the dead men throughout the town. And perhaps they have accumulated these idols as they stayed in Shechem and then from the plundering of the town. He tells them, put these foreign gods away. Purify yourselves. Purify yourselves from idolatry. Purify yourselves from uh, looting those dead bodies. You have become unclean in both uh, spiritually and physically. Purify yourselves. It probably included some sort of ritual washing for the people of God. And he says even change your clothes. This represents a, a total new way of life. Putting off of the old and putting on of the new. Putting away the old things of Shechem and putting on the new things as you head to Bethel, the house of God. And then he says, let us arise and go to worship God. Here he says again, the God who. Notice this is not just uh, a God. This is a God who acts, who works in and among his people. The God who answers me, Jacob says, in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I go. We are going to go to Bethel and worship God. Notice the people's response too. Isn't, doesn't it seem a little bit amazing? They gave all their gods to Jacob along with their earrings, which also perhaps represented idolatry and worldliness. And Jacob buries them under a terebinth tree near Shechem. Now consider how how easy it is, it seems, for God's people to drift away from God, to drift into worldliness. How, How easily it seems that even God's people drift into idolatry and sin. If you've ever been on a lake in a boat, you'll notice if the wind is blowing, you're in one place, and all of a sudden, a few minutes later, you're at a totally different end of the pond. You gradually drift. You have no anchor to hold you in that place. Or if you're driving down the road in the car and you take your eyes off the road and maybe you're turning to, to look, to see if it's okay to change lanes. You're slowly drifting into another lane if you're not careful. How easy it is for God's people to drift 
into sin and idolatry. And really this is the case with God's people throughout history, isn't it? We see it all throughout the Old Testament. God's people being drawn away uh, to foreign gods, to sin, being drawn away from the God who has saved them. I even referenced it earlier this morning as God's people had been rescued from Egypt and they turned so quickly into forming this, this calf, this golden calf to worship. As Moses lingers, delays at the top of the mountain. And yet, we also might think, well, shouldn't it be different with us? After all, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So it should be perhaps different with us than the people of, the, of God in the Old Testament. But then I would also have you consider Paul, who in Romans 7 says he, he cannot bring himself to do the things that he, he desires to do in service to God. Or consider even the churches of Revelation, where God calls his people back to repentance, away from uh, pollution and idolatry and sin. This is the case with God's people throughout history. And often what it is that leads us astray is losing sight of God's word. God's word is an anchor to us, an anchor for us, to keep us in his way. I'm reminded of Psalm 1, uh, where we are told of the blessed man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But, but what does he do instead? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here in our text, Jacob and his people have drifted away from the Lord into idolatry, and it has come it seems as a result of Jacob forgetting the vow that he made to God. And so God patiently redirects Jacob and his people. He reminds him of his vow in order to lead him into repentance and recommitment. And this is what God does by his word for his people. He patiently redirects us and reminds us in order to lead us to repentance and to recommitment. And so... My call to you today would be like that of the New Testament. Are there areas of your life where you have drifted away from God? You have drifted into idolatry and sin. Paul calls the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, to 24 to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and it's corruptful, corrupt through deep deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God calls us to repentance. He calls us to to purify ourselves and to recommit ourselves to his ways. And yet consider how he does this with Jacob and his people. Do you notice how God addresses Jacob? We We see patience in this address to Jacob. He doesn't scold him for his lack of obedience, for his dwelling for too, many, too much time in the land of Shechem. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't 
give them a guilt trip for all of their idolatry. He simply, patiently redirects them to Bethel. God's patience leads us to repentance and recommitment. God has been patient with Jacob and with his people, and he has been patient with us. And this leads us to repentance. Now certainly God uses his holy law and guilt to break our hearts, to break us and to drive us to Christ. He uses his law and guilt of sin to bring us to repentance and to drive us to Christ. But he also uses his patience sometimes to melt our hearts. To melt our hearts to repentance. He does this both sometimes with unbelievers and with believers. So if you are an unbeliever this morning, I want you to consider that God is not slow to fulfill His promise. Rather, He is being patient with you, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Patience either leads our hearts to further hardening or it leads to melting our hearts in repentance. But you shouldn't confuse his patience with kind of a slackness or a passivity. Slackness or passivity is without purpose. So I heard, overheard a mom the other day in a restaurant, and she was getting on to her kids for not eating. I, I chuckled a little bit, but it was because I recognized myself and what she was doing and what she was saying. Now, they didn't seem to be acting all that bad, but she must have had a bad day that morning. They kept getting distracted. They wouldn't eat. And she says, I'm going to take you in the bathroom and spank you if you don't eat that sandwich. And she continues on, I really am. I really am going to do it. You eat. Two or three times. And then, I am never going to buy you food in this restaurant ever again. My entire life, I'm never going to buy you food here again. She wasn't displaying much patience. And I recognized that in my own life. Uh, Rather, she was giving uh, mere threats to try and get them to do what she wanted. It was more passivity and slackness rather than patience. But God's patience flows from His mercy. God's patience to Jacob and His people flows from His mercy for them. God's patience is long-lasting, but it is not everlasting. And so uh, Thomas Watson gives this image of... God being patient with unbelievers, those who are unrepentant in their sin, being patient, but all the while, a vial is being filled with His wrath, being stored up for the last day. If you are an unbeliever, you need to recognize that God is being patient with you, that you would come to repentance, and yet, His patience will not last forever. Turn from your sins. Turn from your idolatry. And trust in Christ To save you. Believers, God is also patient with us. Consider recurring sins that you have. Consider sins that you committed 20 years ago when you first became a believer and are still a part of your struggle to this day. Do you have sins like that? Perhaps pick out one or two recurring sin patterns in your life and consider, just pause for a moment and consider the patience of God with you. Maybe you're, you're plagued by pride. And this has negative impa- a negative impact on your relationships with others. How impatient you are with them. 
How you self-righteously judge others. Maybe you've struggled with the sin of lust for a long time. You continue to struggle. And you continue to turn again to confession and repentance to God. And consider His patience with you. Consider the sin of not being involved in, for the sake of the poor and oppressed. A, a sin of omission, not loving your neighbor as you should have. Not being diligent to serve the poor and care for the widow and the orphan. You get caught up in your own busy schedule to the point you totally neglect serving anyone else or caring for others or loving others. Consider God's patience with you. He has been so patient with us. And let His patience towards you in these things lead you to repentance and to recommitment. Let, these things, let God's patience here melt your heart in repentance that you would look back over your life and see his continuing to accept you because of Christ. And let that lead you to repentance and recommitment. Uh, another Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, says, reminds us of God's love for us and patience toward us. And when he says this, For Christians, your sins move Christ more to pity than to anger. Have you recognized that? This is the patience of Christ. That your sins move Christ more to pity than to anger with you. God reminds Jacob of his vow, and then he redirects him by his word. He redirects him back to Bethel. Notice, uh, secondly, not only God reminds Jacob of his vow, in verses 5 to 15, God reaffirms his promises to Jacob. He reaffirms his promises to Jacob. We see God's uh, protection as they journeyed, Uh, From Shechem to Bethel, Uh, they used to be a peace-loving people, the people of God, and now they're more like a warrior people. Word has spread about what happened to Shechem, what happens if you mess with Israel and his people. And God instills, God plants this fear of the people so that they will not be attacked. They arrive in Bethel, and Jacob calls the place El Bethel. This is a new name for the place. First, he calls it the house of God. And here he calls it the God of the house of God or the God of Bethel. This new name change focuses, takes the focus from the holiness of the place to the holiness and the faithfulness of God. The focus is no longer on the place, the house of God. It is on the God of Bethel. It represents Jacob's changed perspective. And notice God appeared to Jacob again and blesses him. We see God blessed Jacob in several ways. We see another name change. Now you say, didn't he already name, change his name? Why is he changing his name again? His name has already been changed from Jacob to Israel. And yet there is a difference here. And the difference represents, uh, the renaming of Jacob yet again represents God's favor towards him. But also notice there's no longer a negative connotation with Israel as there was in the previous instance. He goes from Jacob, the deceiver, to Israel, the one who wrestles with God in our previous instance. And here, that negative connotation is left off. He goes from Jacob, the deceiver, to Israel, who will become a great nation. This represents something different. God not only 
reminds Jacob of his new name, he also reminds Jacob of his name. I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, as he had revealed himself once before. He commands him, be fruitful and multiply. It reminds us of Adam and Eve in the garden and Noah afterwards, this command to be fruitful and multiply. And yet notice, it might seem a little bit odd because Jacob is past the age of having children. What, what does he mean by commanding Jacob to, have, to be fruitful and multiply? Well, I think it leads directly into the promise. You will become a nation and a company of nations. Nations will come from you. Kings will come from you. He reiterates, he reaffirms these promises to Jacob that you will become a great nation and I will give you and your offspring this land. God goes up and Jacob worships him. He sets up a pillar and pours out a drink offering on it. He pours out oil on it. Notice in this part of our passage that God reaffirms his promises and he does it in order to reassure his people of his grace. He reaffirms his promises to reassure his people of his grace. He, he is reassuring his people of their standing with him. This shows us once again God's favor upon Jacob. It results in confidence in God and in worship. It results in confidence in God, not ourselves, because his favor is based all upon grace. Now notice throughout this, this passage the grace of God in this reaffirmation of the promises. There's the protection on their journey, God's gracious protection. There's, there are the promises of God that are still in effect. And notice the language that is used, the land I gave to Abraham and Isaac. I will give it to you. I will give it to your offspring. And he even expands it to include kings. This, this giving from God to Jacob. And then God goes up from Jacob. It, it reminds us he must have come down first. He must have condescended first. And even speaking with Jacob is a great grace from God. Well, I want us to reflect upon the grace of God in our life. This chapter is all about reminders. You see these reminders of pillars and of altars and reiterated promises and renaming once again. This chapter is all about reminders. And so let us reflect for a moment upon the grace of God. Let us remember the grace of God in our own lives. First, I think there, there is value. We should recognize there's value in revisiting the places where God has visited us. I don't mean this in some weird way about God actually coming down like he came with Jacob there at Bethel. But there are places and there are times that stick out in our minds of when God visited us in his grace. When he ministered to us by his grace. There is great value in revisiting in our minds, in our memories, these places where God has visited us. And, and even it reminds us I even think there's some value in physically uh, revisiting those places, right? We, we do this with uh, perhaps where, where we got married. It brings back special memories. We do this with where we bury our loved ones. We go to these physical places, and there are memories that are stirred up by being in those physical places. We are physical pe- beings in physical places. But what would, what would those places be like for you where God 
at a certain period of time, in a certain place, ministered to you greatly by His grace. I can think of several throughout my life. I can think of Temple Baptist Church in Raleigh, where men poured into me. I was raised by a single mother. And these men in RAs just poured their lives into me, taught me the scriptures, cared for me. I can think of uh, one of my Sunday school teachers who on our Sunday school retreat at the beach lost his life trying to rescue several of my friends as they were washed out to sea. I think of God ministering to us by His grace in those instances. I think of uh, Campbell University where I had wandered off the path in many ways and then my freshman year in college attending a Bible study and God ministered to me by His grace. I can think of of Africa where I, I traveled in 1998 and God changed me. I can think of our failed adoptions where God reassured us that he would be faithful to us. I can think of our successful adoptions, where we have uh, our children, Isaiah and Jana, and God has ministered to us in his grace. Remembering those places where God visited us in his grace stirs up a heart for worship. It primes the pomp for worshiping God for his worthiness. Spend some time, perhaps later today, revisiting those places in your own mind where God has ministered to you mercifully, only because of Christ, only because of the work of Christ for us, He visited you in grace. Also, I want to encourage you to remember your identity in Christ. Remember God ministering to you in in grace, but also remember your new identity in Christ. So Bethel is changed to El Bethel. Jacob is changed to Israel. God is reminding him of his new identity as one who belongs to him. And just as Jacob took all the idols from God's people, so Christ has taken away our sins and sorrows. He has changed us. We have a new identity for any and all who have come to Christ in repentance and faith. We are new. He buried our sins, not at the base of a tree, but he took them with him as he bore God's wrath on that tree for us. And God has taken our sins and buried them deep in the sea of forgetfulness where they'll never again come back to haunt us. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and given a new way of living. He has given us a new identity in Christ. We have been changed by His grace. And now we who are in Christ are one family. We are one people. Though we are diverse in age or worldly status or culture or ethnicity, those things no longer separate us, for we are all one in Christ and we belong to God in Christ. We should remember our new identity in Christ, which has been purchased by the blood of Christ. And we should remember God's graciousness in giving us the kingdom. Just as Jacob was reminded God promised to give this land to his fathers and to him and to his offspring, we should be reminded of God's promise to give us, who are in Christ, the kingdom. 
I'm reminded of Luke chapter 12, verses 32 to 34. Or this, this beautiful, comforting, encouraging passage where Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's nothing that is earned or merited by our hard work and determination, by our purity of faith or purity of living. It is something that God gives to his people. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And this leads us to, as we consider these things, as we think about the ways God has ministered to us in his grace, the ways he has changed us and given us a new identity, as we think about his good pleasure to give us the kingdom, this leads us to reassurance with our standing before him. A reassurance that we do indeed belong to God and that he has favor upon us, not by our own works, but because of Christ. And it leads us to worship. It leads us to worship. It leads Jacob and his people to recommitment and to worshiping him at that altar in Bethel. God reaffirms his promises to Jacob, and so now God reaffirms his promises to you who are in Christ. Every Sunday morning, as you hear the word, read and proclaimed as you hear Christ proclaimed Christ is being presented before us and we are being reassured of his favor for us as we partake in the sacraments the Lord's Supper and baptism God is nourishing us by his word and by the gospel that we would stand firm that we would remember our salvation our acceptance before God rests in nothing except for Christ alone in his person and work for us. God reminds Jacob of his vow, and he reaffirms his promises to Jacob, and he is reassured of his standing before God. And now, notice in verses 16 to 29, that God returns Jacob to his father's house. His journey is not quite over. He stays in Bethel for a little while, but he wants to go all the way home. Remember his vow in chapter 28, verse 21, to come all the way back to his father's house in peace. And what we see in the remainder of this chapter is what we know to be true in our own experiences, that the, the blessings of this life are always mixed blessings, always mixed with sorrows. Consider the blessings that you've enjoyed in your life. Have they often not been followed by great sorrows? We see the birth of his son, Benjamin. And birth is always fear filled with this expectation mixed with fear. If you've ever been in a waiting room waiting for a child to be born, you know that feeling. There's this anxiousness. There's this, this fear of all the things that could go wrong, and yet there's this anticipation, this excitement of new life. So I can imagine Rachel and Jacob in fearful expectation of this new baby. And Rachel's servant tries to encourage her. You have a new son. God is blessing you with a new son. And yet her life is ebbing away and she dies. This birth of Benjamin, this joyous occasion is mixed with great sorrow. Death of his beloved wife, Rachel. The one he worked 14 years for. The one he loved more than anyone else. There are these mixed blessings of 
having these 12 sons, and yet also disappointment with the sin of Reuben. Now this sin of Reuben in laying with his uh, concubine is uh, not only a a sin, but also it's an attempt to usurp Jacob's leadership within the family. There's this, this relational tension going on within the family. There's these mixed blessings of these many sons and yet this one son trying to take Jacob's leadership. Jacob's 12 sons, of course, represent a nation and a company of nations, which would be the fulfillment of God's promises to him. And notice who's next in line to take on the role of leader over God's people. Verse 23, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, And yet we see in the previous verse that he has abdicated his opportunity to become the leader of God's people. Next are Simeon and Levi, who have also lost their opportunity to become the leaders over God's people because of their sin in Shechem. They're taking vengeance into their own hands for their sisters. So who is next? Judah is next. He is the one through whom God's promises would be fulfilled. He is the one through whom God's offspring would grow and become nations and accompany nations and through whom the promised offspring would come, who would bless all nations through him. We even see that Jacob has the joy of getting to see his father once more. But he dies. Mixed blessings. And Esau and Jacob... Their new reconciled relationship, they come back together and bury their father. And the point, I think, one point from all this is that in our pilgrimage through this life, it will be filled with ups and downs, with disappointments, with joy, tears of sorrow and tears of laughter, with mixed blessings. This is a difficult journey that we are on. But there are some reminders here as well for this this pilgrimage that we're on. First, a first reminder is this. You are not alone in this. You are not alone in this difficult journey. For one thing, it's common to all. The difficulties, the trials and joys of this life are common to all humans, common to all people throughout all times and all places. But also, if you are in Christ, you are not alone in this in that you have a community of faith. Or you should have a community of faith. You should be a part of a local church, a local body of believers. You are a part of a community of faith making a pilgrimage together. We are in this together. We are on this pilgrimage together. It reminds me of uh, the Council of Elrond in the Fellowship of the Rings, if you've seen that movie. There, uh, Frodo is... He he actually takes on the task of taking this ring and taking it into the heart of enemy territory in order to destroy it, this little hobbit. And there are several who stand up and say, we will join with you in doing this. And so Gandalf, the wizard, comes to his side. Aragorn says, you have my sword. Legolas the elf says, you have my bow. And Gimli says, you have my axe. There are nine companions in all. And they are given this task to do it together. They won't be able to do it without the help of one another. And we have this fellowship 
as we are on this pilgrimage, on this journey to the promised land, and we will face various trials and difficulties. But we must face them together. Each one contributes something unique to the family of God. God has given us gifts for the purpose of building up His body, strengthening one another, helping one another, shoring up what is lacking in one another. But the thing is, you have to avail yourself of it. You have to avail yourself of this community of faith if you are to reap the benefits of it. So consider, in what ways have you neglected your responsibility to your brothers and sisters in Christ? In what ways have you not contributed your giftings and your strengths for the building up of the body of Christ? In what ways have you withheld being known from the community of faith? In what ways have you uh, not availed yourself of the community of faith so that others could minister to you and strengthen you in areas that are lacking? You are not alone in this. God has provided a family as we are on this journey. And we are also reminded that God will faithfully carry us all the way home on this journey. It's evident throughout Jacob's life. Now, we have the benefit of seeing Jacob's life from beginning to end, and we don't have that benefit in our own lives. We still have perhaps many years left on our journey. We don't get to see our lives in the way we get to see Jacob's. But we can be sure of this, that God will be faithful to bring us all the way home. How can we be sure of this? How can we be sure that God will be faithful to bring his children all the way home? Well, he was not only faithful to preserve Jacob, he also preserved his offspring. He was faithful to his promises to his offspring. He made from him nations and kings, King David and the royal line and the royal offspring, which pointed ultimately to the true king of Israel, Jesus Christ. If he had been If if God has been faithful to carry out his plan for his covenant people throughout all of history, will he not also be faithful to carry it out with you as a part of his covenant people? You might object, but that's so big and important, and I'm so small and unimportant. Why Why would God care about me? And my reply would be, well, Israel was not big and important. It was small and unimportant. From one man, Abraham, who was a nobody, God grew his family, his covenant people. I would also reply uh, to consider the context of Jesus' words to give the kingdom to his people. To give this kingdom to his little flock. Do you know the context of that? It's do not be anxious. Do not worry about your life what you will eat and what you will drink. He says, consider the ravens. They don't plant or reap. They don't have bank accounts to keep their money in. And yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? And he says, consider the lilies, the flowers of the field. They don't work or they they don't sow clothes, but God clothes clothes them with more beauty than Solomon could have ever dreamed of. And if God takes care of the flowers which are here today and burn up in the sun tomorrow, 
How much more will he clothe you and care for you, O you of little faith? So he says in Luke 12, Do not seek what you are to eat or, and what you are to drink, or, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In the grand, epic plan of redemption, God, the Almighty, does not overlook the little things. He even makes note of Rebecca's nurse, Deborah. No, in fact, he delights to come down and show his faithfulness to his creation, to little birds and flowers, and to his little flock, his covenant people, and to you, his little lamb within the flock. He takes notice of you. He cares for you. And God's faithfulness in this moves us to faith, confidence in him. We are on a pilgrimage. And there's a difference between aimless wandering and a pilgrim. A pilgrim is on his way to a certain destination. Jacob had come full circle from leaving his father's house, the ups and downs of his life, and God had brought him all the way home. My wife and I watched a show for a time called Parenthood. Have you ever heard of that show? There are trials and challenges to being parents, and this show portrays those challenges really well. There are retired Parents and their concerns, their single parents, interracial parents, parents of a child with Asperger's. And there are also the challenges of brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. And it vividly portrays the challenges of what it means to be a part of a family, of what it means to walk through this life with different trials and challenges. But the best part of every show is when they all come back home. They all go to their father's house. The, the picture is beautiful. There's a family gathered around a table, a big table which can hold all 20 of them. They gather around this table for a meal with good food, good drink, and some, perhaps some dancing breaks out and some singing breaks out. It's such a joyful scene and it, it's one that makes me long. For the kingdom of heaven. It's a picture that reminds me of the kingdom of heaven. It makes me long for the day when all God's children will be gathered around a great feast on a huge table in the heavenly kingdom. We will share a meal together. And there will be joy like we have never imagined. And there will be no more sorrows and no more pain. We're told about it in Romans Uh, Revelation 19, verses 6 to 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed indeed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, into God's presence with full favor and acceptance, with full love and joy forever. Let's pray together.